Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. In this message, Pastor Andy McGowan is going to teach through Romans chapter 12 as we look at the Christian life. Enjoy the message. Today we're going to talk about what does it mean to walk in the Christian life? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I think that's a really important question in today's day and age. Many people say they're Christ's followers or they're Christians And we have an idea in our head with what we think is a Christian and we project it on that person when they say they're a Christian, but what's it really mean to be a Christian? If you ask someone in the street uh, in in America, the majority of the people are gonna say, yeah, they believe in Jesus, at least in some different ways they will believe in Jesus. If you pull the majority of the Americans, they would say they're Christian. But simply because you grew up in a family that went to church or maybe you're a kid and you went to a kid's program, a VBS, or you were part of a youth group, That doesn't mean you're a Christian. I mean, I was a youth pastor for almost a decade, and I I see people all around town are like, yo, Andy, I was in your youth group, yo, for like two weeks, Jesus and me. I'm like, where are you going to church? I haven't been to church since, you know, when I went out those two weeks, but Jesus and I were tight. I'm like, yeah, are you sure? Like, we have this idea of what is a Christian, and I think there's a lot of people that have false ideas of what exactly it means to be a Christian. I had friends growing up. They were all Christians, or so they said. Uh, none of them went to church. Uh, they, they were the ones I learned all the cuss words from. Uh, they were the ones by the first grade I learned the birds and the bees. First grade? I mean, if that was in the late 1980s, I, heaven forbid what's happening now. Uh, they didn't go to church. They said they were Christians, but yet when I went to church and I went to Sunday school, I learned everything opposite of what my friends were saying was what was a Christian. And so as a kid, I learned very early Now, just because a person says they're a Christian does not mean they're a Christ follower. I I actually prefer that term in today's day and age. Do you follow Christ? Are you a Christ follower? Today, many people who once said previously they were Christians, they are now no longer calling themselves as such. You see this in the Gallup polls and the, the different public pollings, that many people are abandoning that title and saying they're agnostic or even atheist. And it's not that they're losing their faith, it's just they're losing the title of which they never had faith. But there is an increasing uh, number within the church today where people did have a theological understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, They would say, we would say from observation, they were fully devoted. Uh, They were involved in church. Maybe they grew up in youth group and they got involved in church and they served and they they could say all the right Jesus answers. They They went to city groups, but then all of a sudden one day they were gone. Kind of the Irish goodbye, you know? They just said they're never, they're, they're gone. Where'd they go? I don't know. Then you find out, they're like, oh, you know, the reason why I'm not going to church is because I've been enlightened. Enlightened with what? I've been enlightened with who Jesus really is. In fact, we call that in today deconstruction. Uh, Today, there are a number of people with theological Bible backgrounds. They can have a conversation with you and even give you the right answers, but then they tell you where they're really at. They have a new understanding of who Jesus is. They're questioning the literal literal nature of salvation or heaven or hell. And they question the authority of scriptures altogether. This is the in vogue thing to do today, right? It's to question everything God's word. And and we think we're being cute with that. But when you read Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, it's not all that new because Satan went up to the first human beings and said, did God really say that? And that, that's what's in vogue today is that, did God really say this? And we come around, we think that we have some kind of new understanding of a God, and that's what a lot of people are doing today. They still say they're Christians, but they're anything but having a biblical understanding of what the Bible actually has to say. 
So it goes back to the original question. What does it mean to be a Christian? Is it just a set of beliefs uh, acting in a certain way? Well, definitions are important. We need to understand that in conversations and culture today, definitions are very very important because when you don't define something, somebody in culture today is hijacking the definition to take a narrative or understanding of a concept a whole new direction. Definitions are important. So what does the Bible say about the word Christian? Well, the first occurrence of the word Christian in the Bible is in Acts chapter 11. It was in Antioch, the first place where believers were called Christians. Now, that word Christian was not a term of endearment, okay? Uh, it was a pejorative. It was a, uh, oh, look at those people, those Christians. Christian literally means little Christ. <laughs> Have you seen those little Christ walking around? Remember Jesus, how crazy he was? Yeah, look at all these little Christ, right? It, it was not a term that you necessarily wanted to hear. But yet, the church began to adopt it. Don't you love that when someone ado- adapts a taunt, Right? They're like, oh, yeah, I'll take that word, and I'll take it, and I'll take it as a badge of honor, right? And people are like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So Christian became a term that the church adopted. And to be called a Christian in the New Testament age then meant this. It meant that you believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. That through him and him alone that he died on the cross for your sins. That he stood in your place as a perfect sinless sacrifice, never needing to be sacrificed again. And because he's sinless, he rose from the dead. It means that you realize that only through Christ you have hope, not only in this life, but all of eternity. To be a Christian in the early church, they understood that the gospel indeed changes everything. The reason why churches abandon that is because they get bored with the gospel. And when you get bored with the gospel, you start to make another gospel. But there is no other gospel. And the New Testament church believed that. And they would give their life for it. They'd lose their ends, their means. They would lose their families for it. They could lose everything for it. And the outside world looked at the New Testament Christian and they saw a difference. They were different. Not for difference to be different sake. Sometimes we as followers of Christ, we're like, well, I gotta be different. What's that mean? Well, I gotta wear, my clothes gotta be outdated by three decades. Uh, I gotta watch Andy Griffith, only in black and white, not the color version. Uh, Little House on the Prairie is a bonus. Hey, you remember, anybody remember growing up in the 80s and 90s and it was like, that's what it meant to be a Christian? It's just different for different sake? That, that's not what that means. We're different because the way that we see the world, the way that we operate, we treat people, we say things about people, the way that we love, the way that we go about all of life, it's different than the rest of the world. Amen? By the way, nothing against those shows, okay? Some of you are like, hey, I have an issue with that. Some of you are like, what are those shows? Hey, you know. (laughs) But the New Testament Christian knew that because of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ, when they got knocked down, no matter how hard life was or how hard it was pressing against them, they, through the Holy Spirit, could get back up and walk another day because they remembered they weren't just citizens of the country that they found themselves in. They were citizens of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God, and you're the agents, the ambassadors of the almighty King Jesus who will never leave the throne. So what does it mean to be a Christian or better yet to live the Christian life? It means to be sold out to King Jesus. For some of you, you have yet to personally give your life to Jesus. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that today. And today, for many of you, it might mean 
that you have to get your, line back in, your life back in alignment. That description of the early church, it seems like, man, that's so separate from how I experience the things of God today. Maybe even after giving that description of the early church, you recall when you first gave your life to Jesus if you're a Christ follower, and, and you remember in the first days or weeks or months just how on fire you were for Jesus. But then the honeymoon wore off. How are you doing with Jesus today? Was there a time you felt closer to God than what you're experiencing right now? Be honest. Be honest with your heart. Our, our, uh, our youth pastor, our student ministries pastor, Pastor Brandon, he loves to ask this question in the office every day. And I actually dig this question, but some people it just makes him so mad, right? He's a, he comes up and he goes, so how are you doing today? Right? He's so, I love it. He's just so positive. He goes, how are you doing today? Scale of one to 10. How are you doing? Right? Some of you love that question. Some of you despise that question. And then I say, well, I'm doing about an eight today, okay? And then you got to kind of realize, like, okay, an eight is good for some people. For some people, it's a disaster. You've got to kind of figure out everybody's scale. But he asks, how are you doing, one to ten? Then he brings out this feelings wheel, and it, then you're kind of, you're just aware of yourself after you're done. It's like, okay, all right. But what I want you to do is I want you to be painfully aware, where are you at with God this morning? Let's do the, let's do the scale, zero to ten, right? One to ten. Where are you at? Is there a moment you felt closer to God than you're experiencing right now? Maybe you felt the love of God just drifting in this season. It could be hardships. It could be the seasons of life that you're in. Maybe you're in a season where the kids, say you, just, you have kids in your life, and, and they're just functionally taking all that time, that maybe that bandwidth that you could have given God. Maybe it could be the job that you're in. It's just eating your life away. It could be that bill after bill after bill. For some of you, you remember those bills are because of bad financial decisions you made. For some of you, it's just a bad season where everything just broke down at once. Maybe you're ill, maybe you're depressed, or maybe on the flip side, this has been one awesome, abundant season, but in that abundance, you forgot God. Why is it that we drift? Where is your love for God this morning? You love something, you're about something. What is or who is that something? Here's our main idea this morning before we get in the text. That's something you love. You are what you love. Whatever you're all about, whatever you think, whatever you consume, whatever you spend your money on, what, what, what all you're about, you are what you love. You are what you love. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and we're going to discuss this. What is a Christian? And it has a lot to do with love, and you are what you love. In the last uh, 11 chapters of Romans, as you're turning there, let me give you some background here. In the last 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has laid out clearly how one, unmistakably, how one could be brought into right relationship with God. We are born alienated from God. Every single one of us needs a rescue. And Paul lays out very clearly, it's not from us, it's all what Jesus did. And receiving what Jesus did, that we could be made right with him because of his death and resurrection. And so he goes through this in the first 11 chapters, and then in chapter 12... He begins to get to the practical, all right? And this will, this will be what we go through the rest of the book of Romans. You know, often we want to get right to the practical, but here's the deal. The practical won't work if you don't understand whom you worship and whom you love. And so we arrive at Romans chapter 12. We did a few weeks ago. Let's read Romans 12.1 again. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now to the Roman readers who received this letter, 
this was huge. Hearing Romans chapter 12, verse 1, they're like, wait, what? For the Jewish people, they were accustomed to bringing in animal sacrifices, right, into their temple. Uh, the, the, the first and the best of, of their animals. And they would, they would sacrifice the animal and killing the animal in a very bloody and very, uh, very well, unforgettable way of representing a sacrifice. So for, the, so for the Jewish people, hearing a living sacrifice, something that continues to live after sacrifice, like that doesn't make any sense. For the pagans of, of Rome and the Roman Empire... They, their ears popped up as well, too. They're like, wait a minute. For a sacrifice to them, yet your whole body is to be a sacrifice. They were accustomed going into the pagan temple and indulging with their body. Oftentimes in pagan cultures and pagan temples, they would, they would, people would go see prostitutes and somehow connecting, whether it be with the god of fertility or different, different gods. And so they heard this verse. They heard this command that the whole world would, would be put on notice that the Christian life is different. Why? Because the sacrifice of the Christian life was not life-taking, but life-giving. Our bodies were not meant for illicit pleasure, but to be used, mind, body, and spirit, our whole selves as an act of worship to God. Last week, we looked at how followers of Christ are gifted as a result. If our life is to be an act of sacrifice, a, a living sacrifice, our whole selves, uh, what are we to do with our life? We are to use the gifts that God gave us to build up his church, to move his kingdom forward. And if you missed out last week, please go back to that and listen to the few messages that we have on Kenosha.Church on spiritual gifts, but there is a practical tool if you haven't taken already. A number of you have. Some of you even posted it on your social medias. That was awesome. But there's a QR code. Uh, there it is right there. If you scan that, take a picture of that, you can take a spiritual gift test and begin that process of understanding how has God gifted you, all right? This is the same QR code from last week. Again, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're spiritually gifted. If you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you need to get right with God first before you figure out how you're gifted, and that is why we're here. God made you to reflect his goodness. God made you to know him, to make much of him, uh, to move his kingdom forward. But the kingdom is not moving forward in many places this morning because people have fallen in love with things other than God or they've taken good things and they've made them the best things and they've moved God down in the process. Remember, you are what you love. And so what is a Christian life? And he needs to be one that is enamored by the love of God. A love of Jesus in you will be characterized by these two things that we're going to talk about this morning. Number one is this. A love that is genuine. A love that is genuine. Romans chapter 12 verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. I grew up in a family that said, I love you. A million times a day, all right? I know some, I have some of my people in here that say to your family, I love you a billion times a day, right? This is here, whoop, whoop, all right? Anybody? All right, there's some of you in here. That's great. Some of you are like, uh-uh, that's not us. Uh, you'd go through a, a day in the McGowan household and it'd be at least a dozen times a day that you would hear, I love you. And in fact, on the phone, when you hear the word, phrase, I love you with any of my family members, that usually means you have another minute to go in the conversation. And then at the very end of the conversation, you're like, hey mom, I love you. Oh, I love you too. I can't wait to see you in six weeks. Oh yeah, it's gonna be great. I'll see you in six weeks. I love you. I love you too, all right? It's just, it's just a continual I love you fest, all right? Well, then I met my wife, Allison. 
And I remember the first time that we told each other we loved each other, right? Uh, and then I began to say it on the phone. And I'm like, Allison, I love you. And she goes, oh, I, I love you too. Hey, Allison, I love you. Um, well, you've already told me that. Um, but I love you too. Allison, uh, by the end of the phone conversation, Allison, I love you. Andy, I know. <laughs> and then get this true story. Her parents are obviously kind of listening in the living room at her house and like, man, that, that boyfriend of yours, he says I love you a lot. That's kind of weird, right? Now, some of you are laughing and you're nudging because you're from those families. And I'm not here to pick on one family or the other. It's not about the frequency of what you say, uh, how you say or, or how often you say I love you. It's about what you mean behind it. Because what we see here is love must be sincere. And if it's sincere, that means it's real. Notice this, Romans 12, 9, the first thing Paul brings up about the Christian life is sincerity and genuine love. A love that's not just in word only. And listen, it should be expressed. A lot of people don't know where they stand today is because we're refusing to give words of affirmation. I'm not talking about frequency, all right? Some of you only need it once a month, all right? But every human being needs words of affirmation. God made that. But it's not about just word only. Love that's sincere is not hypocritical. And this isn't a new concept. In fact, Jesus talked about it in John chapter 13, verse 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you, let's say it together, love one another. Love is the hallmark of the Christian life. It's the first thing listed in the fruit of the spirit and when the gifts of the spirit went bonkers in the church of Corinth Paul had to bring people not back to a here's how you function in this gift he's like hey how about love it never fails it'll never end first John three fourteen says we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters the one who does not love remains in death Jesus said the world will take notice because of your example of love. Remember all of the, the differences the world saw in the early Christians that they were willing to give their life, but they saw their love. And love is a word that universally people love to embrace. Notice I said love. Oh yeah, love can be used so many different ways. We'll get into that in a moment. But we love to embrace the word love culture-wide all across the world. In fact, one of the most famous songs about love is all you need is love, right? But the problem is love only works if we have a shared understanding of what love is. In today's culture, the word love is confusing people because we don't really define it any longer. So how is love defined in culture today? I scoured so many different definitions and uh, I, I promise you I didn't read this. It just, it came up on a bunch of a definition lists. But I'm like, oh, this is great because this is probably how the culture understands this. So this is from Cosmopolitan. I promise you I didn't read the magazine, all right? This is from Cosmopolitan. This is how they define love. Culture defines love this way. Love is incredibly subjective thing. And within love itself, there are a whole bunch of different kinds of love. Love is an intense feeling of affection. <laughs> What does that even say, right? Not much, it's just feeling. And whatever you're feeling, then you give some meaning to that feeling. But you don't know what you're feeling, so you don't know what you're meaning, but yet we call it love. Oh yes, if, if, you, didn't, if, if you didn't like land somewhere a little bit more concrete, you're with me as well. I don't understand 
what Cosmo's trying to say. What they are trying to say is this, I believe is love is whatever you make of it. And that would give rise to the vagueness of phrases like love wins or love is love. So how is love defined? Culture defines love this way is how Cosmo says it. But how does the world, or how does the Bible say it? Well, before I get to that, let me just tell you what C.S. Lewis has to say. C.S. Lewis, a long time ago, observed this about love. He said this, the problem about making love an end to itself, in his work, The Four Loves, he explains this, love begins to be a demon the moment he begins to be a god. Love becomes a demon the moment he begins to be a god. Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands us a total commitment and attempts to override all other claims and, 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 and intuitions of any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. Basically what C.S. Lewis is saying is this, is that we have a tendency of making love a God of which we give meaning to that God. The Bible does not stand behind this understanding. In fact, what is love? Love isn't love. The Bible says God is love. First John chapter four, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be atoning sacrifice for our sins. As followers of Christ, as Bible-believing Christians, we understand that God is love. God is the embodiment of love. Love comes from God. Love is sacrificial, as in we see the ultimate sacrifice that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to stand in our place. And that love is not from us. Love is not of our own making. It's not that we love God. He first loved us. Now, when we look at the Greek language of which the New Testament was written, we understand that there are at least four different significant words, Greek words, that speak of love. And we translate them all in English to one word, love. All right? It's very confusing. It's the reason why we say, I love pizza, especially I love Giordano's pizza. I know it's a polarizing statement, but I love Giordano's pizza, all right? I also loved my dog growing up. We got a new cat. I'm learning to love the cat. Um, uh, I'll give you an update on that one later, okay? Uh, <laughs> I love my friends. I love my kids. I love my wonderful wife, Allison. Uh, I love baseball. I love travel. And oh, yeah, I love God. I love the church. Love, 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 right? Why can I say love to all of those things? It's because we've taken a beautiful language like Greek and we've dumbed it down to English and we make it one word, all right? That's why we love PB and J and Jesus in one sentence. So let's unpack the four major Greek words. There are a few others, but I want to give you the four major. One is eros. Eros has translated love in English. Eros is the feeling of passion. It's also the feeling of lust. It's where we get the English word erotic, all right? You wouldn't use that word to say a, a bunch of different things, right? I, I hope that word is actually pretty absent from our, our language, right? But eros, you can see it in culture, by the way, right? Eros. Philos 
This is the feeling of brotherly love, a love for friends. It's where we get Philadelphia, right? Uh, and that's uh, the city of brotherly love. And so when we have a love for our friends, that, that's that type of love. Then you got storgy, which is the feeling of love towards family members. And then finally we have the greatest of love, and that is agape. And this was a rare word used in Greek culture. Because if you were to agape something, it meant that you were unselfish towards that something. You were placing the needs and welfare of that something above yourself. And, and that's not in Greek culture how people viewed love. Uh, love was a way to expend their passions and their desires. And God uses the word agape. God is agape. He's the embodiment of the greatest love. Love is based what we understand love, on the character of God. God is love, the character of God is love. And yet we often take the world's definition of love and we place that on God. When in actuality, the definition is actually the character of God of which we should be following. God is the originator of love, which means to love God is to love the things that he loves. Agape is used here in Romans 12, 9. Let your agape be genuine. Agape love. Here's some things you need to know about agape love. Number one is it's not sentimental. It's not just sentimental. I know we have some sentimental people in here. I'm sentimental too, right? You hear that song like, oh man, I remember 1997, right? Some of you are like, I don't remember that yet. Okay, all right, 2007, all right? Whenever you're younger, you hear a song from your senior year of high school and you're like, oh yeah, I remember those days. That's being sentimental. But to be sentimental means that only sentimental means that you are, your feelings will be dictated by how you love God or how you love others. Again, there's nothing wrong about being sentimental, looking back at the photo album, feeling, having warm feelings about your past vacations or Christmases or your kids growing up. But love that is only sentimental will get you into big trouble. It'll make your love circumstantial or, or weak at best. What if you just loved your spouse just on the sentimental days of your calendar, your anniversary, your birthdays, your holidays. Listen, if that's the case, your spouse is not going to feel loved when Hallmark dictates it. Same with God. He doesn't want to just be loved on Easter or Christmas or a day that's significant on the calendar. God doesn't want to be loved or worshipped when, when you, oh my goodness, the worship team is playing. Oh, they played Land of the Living today. I absolutely love that. Oh man, we, we, oh, we, have, oh, we have an electric guitar today. Someone's on the drums and oh, we have a violin. Oh, when the combination happens, I get warm fuzzies and I worship Jesus. God wants you to worship him no matter what. Not just when it feels good or sentimental. Listen, those things may make it easier for you to worship, but if it's the only time you worship, you're not really worshiping. You're just feeling. Agape love is not just sentimental. Secondly, agape love is not conditional. I recently presided over a wedding last weekend, and they had one request. Is it Andy? Yes? We want a passage of scripture read at our wedding. Well, okay, yeah, that's pretty normal. We don't want it to be 1 Corinthians chapter 13. <laughs> love is patient. Love is kind. And the reason being, it wasn't because they didn't believe in that. Obviously, they did. It's because it's read at every wedding. Every single one. Like, we don't want that. It's overdone. Right? It's like reckless love on the radio. Right? Or how great is our God? Just give it a rest for a second. Right? That's what, that's what they're saying. 
1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Yes, indeed, this has become the perennial wedding passage and you can have it in your wedding if you want it's scripture it's a it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture but i want to just give a little news flash here it wasn't written for weddings it was written for a church that had gone sideways and bonkers in the gifts of the spirit they were so gifted they were trying to outdo each other but they did not have love and people were holding all these things against each other in the church and they're wondering why okay we have the reputation of being the corinth church but why isn't god showing up the reason why God wasn't showing up is because there was no love. You see, the gifts were failing, but the love never fails. If you want the gifts to propel the church and build the church, you've got to love. But yet their love was conditional in the Corinthian church. They were gifted. They showed it off to make themselves look good. Or even when they tried to love people, their heart was, wasn't to actually love that person. They're being kind to that person because they wanted other people to see their kindness. And they want to be able to see them look at themselves in the mirror and say, I'm a kind person. Woo, right? We need to be kind for, and love people for love's sake, not for how we feel about ourselves or puffing ourselves up, but that's what was happening in this church. Paul was having none of it, and that's why he wrote it for a warning to the church of Corinth and for you and I this morning, that we must love unconditionally. It's not when I'm just in a good mood, but it's realizing that we are to be a living sacrifice and sometimes to worship and praise Jesus when we're having a bad day, that is a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes when it means being nice to somebody and they haven't been nice to you, listen, it's not returning back and having revenge, that is a sacrifice of love. Sometimes love is hard. So what is love? It's kind, does not envy, does not envy what others have or possessions or gifts that they have. And by the way, where there's no envy in the church, did you know that's where church politics die? Did you know that? It's not easily angered. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Woo, that's a big one. In marriage and in friendship and churches, all of life, we love to keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't mean that you sweep things under the rug. It means that you deal with it person to person right there. You deal with it. Because you don't want bitterness to set in. Bitterness is a cancer in the heart of a Christian because, listen, if you're bitter about something this morning, if you've let the root of bitterness go into your heart about somebody or something, I want you to know, however you try to love, uh, people aren't gonna see that love because the radiation of the bitterness will overpower that expression of love. Bitterness. Mm, you know, whenever I think of bitter, sometimes I think of coffee, right? I know that whenever Zach gets up here, he trashes coffee all the time. I've been praying for him and it still hasn't been answered yet. We're gonna have a healing service at the end of the service today, lay hands on you. <laughs> oh boy, I tell you. All right, anyway, but coffee. I am gonna admit something to you today. I don't like coffee. No, I do, I love coffee. Um, I didn't like bitter coffee until I did. You know what I mean by bitter coffee? There's some coffees that taste differently. Some of you are like, oh, they don't taste, they all taste the same. No, they don't, all right? Uh, but you don't figure that out until you start drinking coffee a lot. And then you start drinking, oh, this one's kind of bitter. I don't think I like it. But then you're like, well, I think I'm like more of a, uh, you know, a coffee lover if I do like it. And then you start drinking this bitter coffee over and over and over again till finally you're like, oh, bitter coffee, right? 
And people are like, how do you drink that stuff? Oh, you're just not sophisticated enough, all right? <laughs> yeah, here's the deal. In order to like bitter coffee, you got to keep drinking bitter coffee. And then eventually you fall in love with bitter coffee. Oh boy, you want to know why? Because you are what you love. When you become so familiar with bitterness that's set in your heart, when you keep on going back to the bitterness well, when you're like, oh man, I'm feeling good today. I got to, oh yeah, I'm mad at that person, right? Like when you go back to that bitterness well over and over again, it's not that you want to be repelled or like I should stay away from that. You fall in love with the bitterness. You fall in love with being miserable. And when you're a miserable person, and listen, we've all been a miserable person, right? When we fall in that season of misery, you know what misery likes? It likes company. And people find it. People come together. And in the church in the West, in the church of this world, I say it to our shame, sometimes we don't want to be people in groups of the praise and joy of Jesus Christ. No, rather, sometimes we just want to be miserable and remember, the outside world is watching the church and like, why would I want to be with those miserable people? It's because when you hang out with misery, you fall in love with it. And that's precisely what we see here is that agape love is not conditional. If you make it conditional, bitterness will set into your hearts. Again, that doesn't mean that we are just whatever. Just love everybody and everything and, and you know, all work. No, no, no. Uh, we, we lovingly encourage and build up one another. But love, agape love is not, is not conditional, which leads us to this, because you don't sweep it under the rug. Agape love hates evil. It's, it's not conditional, but it also doesn't love evil. Romans 12, 9 again, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. We are to hate evil. I don't use the word hate very often, but scripture says it here, so here it is. We are to hate evil, and we're to cling to the goodness of God. You cannot be sincere in your love with God and with the passions of God that you exhibit if you love what is evil. Now, hate, again, seems like a strong word, but literally this means, if you want to translate it differently, be in horror of sin, of evil. <gasps> right? Like we, we I, I, I can't say it. it's kind of like, you know, you know, the vampire and the sun comes up like this. That should be us with sin. We should be in horror of it. Evil is not something that's abstract or it's a theory. It's real and it's gunning for our souls. Evil is to be in direct and active opposition of which is good. And it works against the things of God. It pulls people away from the gospel. It distracts people in churches away from the mission. And it enslaves people in addiction. It takes people captive with unbiblical thinking. And as a Christian, we're not just to avoid doing evil. Uh, we're told here in scripture, we need to have an utter disdain for evil. And to have an utter disdain and dislike of evil is to love what God loves and do what God says no exceptions. That means that we aren't to be people of jealousy. We aren't to be people of drunkenness or gossip or lust or anger. People often make exceptions because they think their circumstances warrant it. But I want you to know, no circumstance you find yourself in is above God. None. To be grounded in the truth, we have to be people that are grounded in his word. If you're trying to live life apart from God's word, if you're just trying to like, 
wiggle your way through this Christian life without being in God's word, you're gonna find yourself doing and thinking and saying unbiblical things. We must be people grounded in his word, grounded in prayer. Man, one of the, let, let me just tell you this. Prayer is really hard for people because just their day gets away from them. That's what I hear often. I, that's what happened to me. Set your alarm. Y'all have alarms now in your pocket, like your phone. Just set an alarm. One of my mentors sets an alarm three times a day. And, and he's, a, he's the head of a huge organization. I'm like, really? You have to be reminded too? And he's like, yeah. I was like, all right, all right. Human problem. Here we go, all right? So he, he, lists, he, he puts three alarms to remind him, I need to get away and be with God. And you know what? I guarantee you that is going to just revolutionize your life if you get away with God and you haven't been. When you get away with God, you have time just to reflect and yield to the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you are in love with the Lord, and listen, when you spend time with God, you're gonna fall deeper in love with him. When you're in love with the Lord, you will try not just to obey Some of you have been going through the Christian life. You want to do the right things, but you're doing it just to obey rules so that God will love you. That's called legalism. We do not want to approach our God just by saying, okay, God, I did all these rules. All right, let me have my time off now. That's legalism. Uh, On the flip side, you don't want to love the Lord by not obeying him. Like, you know, I don't know if God really said this. I'm going to twist this a little bit, you know, move this around. And okay, I love you, God, but I'm not going to do this, right? We don't want to do that either. We want to serve and obey God in everything. Because it's a deep reflection and it's a deep personal relationship we have with him, knowing who we are before him and what he has done for us. It is our being in right relationship with him that we want to honor him. We we go before our Lord in grace, not law, not lawlessness, but grace. It is is a way of adoration. God, you've done so much for me. And when you spend time with God, the more time you get to know the Lord, you'll avoid what he says to avoid, and you'll hate evil because you recognize simply the Lord doesn't like it. doesn't like it. And when you realize the Lord doesn't like gossip, you're not going to gossip. When you realize that he doesn't want you to, to lust or consume porn, you're not going to lust or consume porn. Uh, when you realize that your, your words matter, that you're not going to tear people down, you're not going to cuss, you're not going to take the Lord's name in vain, you're going to stop doing that. You realize, you know what, the Lord doesn't want me to get drunk. He doesn't want me to get high. He wants me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to do that and not get high. God, I want to honor you. Big difference of, all right, God, here's my timesheet. Or, okay, God, I just want you, but I don't want anything that you're about. You know, it kind of reminds me when um, Alice and I first started dating. I've shared this before, but it bears, bears repeating. Um, she's so timely. And I'm not, all right? And I found this out when we went to, our, we went to a movie. And we were driving down uh, to, to the movie theater. And uh, listen, I, I'll just say this. We, I, I was still there on time, okay? Like, we were gonna get there right when the movie started. But we didn't communicate that, like, no, to be there on time isn't just getting in there when the title screen comes up. It's getting there before the lights go down. Getting there to watch all the previews. Getting there to get comfortable and get your seat. This is before you reserve seats. And, and, and then getting your popcorn and your soda. I'm like, what? That's being on time? Oh, uh, yeah, whatever. Listen, here, it's not whatever. All right, this has been a battle for 16 years. And I realized finally in my 15-year marriage, like, wait. It doesn't matter if I have a different understanding of what late or on time or whatever it is. I love my wife. 
And if I love my wife, I want to serve and honor my wife with what matters to her most. Even if it doesn't matter to me, it matters to her, which means it should matter to me. Guess what? With the Lord, when you spend time with the Lord, and sometimes it takes 15, 20, 25 years to get some of these things to our thick skull, right? It's like, God doesn't like it. And if God doesn't like it, guess what? I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I love the Lord. You are what you love. Love of Jesus will be characterized by a love that is genuine. Secondly, a love of his kingdom. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, Paul does something here. He, sometimes he likes to like, combine words. This is exactly what he does. He combines two Greek words for love and makes one word. And he combines the word for love of friendship and love of family and makes a word. And this has huge ramifications. Be devoted to one another in love. In brotherly love that has become family love. What's this mean? It means this. He's saying Christians should love each other in the faith as much as you love your earthly family. You know, too often family will trump everything. Whether it's true, whether it's good, whether it's bad or it's wrong. There's the old phrase, blood is thicker than water. Often families will have a mob boss mentality. It's family. Don't you cross my family, right? And this can even trump the things of God. When you place your faith in Christ, I want you to know you have placed yourself, God has actually placed you, uh, rather, uh, in a much bigger, an internal family, a forever family. You're stuck with the brothers and sisters in Christ, all right? Some of you are like, oh, no, all right? Are you serious? I like some of them, but I don't like some of them. Guess what? You're stuck with them. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. When we understand what the gospel has done for you, even the people that are hard to love in the family of God, you realize God died for them, they died for you, and you were no better than them because we were all equally as lost, right? Right? And so therefore, we're told by Paul, we're told, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Paul is not saying, hey, uh, I, Paul is saying, I want you to honor each other. And he's not saying, just be polite, you know, like when you go by somebody, it could even be in church, right? We're human beings, we're flawed, right? We're not perfect people, we're people being made new, right? All right? But there's sometimes people, you, you see at church or you see in the grocery store or whatever, and they're like, oh, dear me, there they are, all right? Oh, how are you doing? They have no clue. They're like, how are you doing? They're like, doing good, right? Well, that's the matter of them today, right? You're like, you're putting on like this, you're, you're, you're putting on this fake smile. And that's what's happened, and people catch that. They realize this love. Oh, God is love. They're like, oh, I've, I've experienced that Christian love. It's flowery, it's cheesy, and it's fake, right? Like, I don't want anything to do with that, I've heard people say. And what people errantly do is that they say, okay, I don't want to be fake. There's someone I have a problem with, so they're mean. That's not what Paul is saying to do. What he's saying is you need to honor your brothers and sisters even if it kills you. Why? Because you realize what Jesus did for you. You get that? Honor isn't optional. Honor is a command. And so when you smile, when you say hello to somebody, it means you realize you're going to go deep down into the gospel. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be a sacrifice. But when you put something on fake, it, that's, not, that's not going deep down into who God is. 
right? That's just getting out of a situation. He wants you to go deep down into who you are. The word honor means that we've placed a high value on something. We should not be in short supply of honoring and seeing the best in people. It's a core value here at Kenosha City Church. It's a core value that we will see the best in each other. Uh, some only want to show honor if they deserve it, right? Have you heard that? Ah, oh, they don't deserve these words of effort. Ah, oh, they don't deserve it. Listen, here's the deal. You want to talk about what we deserve? Talked about this last week. It's alienation from God, eternal separation from God in a place called hell, right? That's what we all deserve, right? Uh, we don't deserve any of God's mercy, any of his kindness, but because God is so full of love and mercy and kindness, he came to this world 2,000 years ago, went on the cross, saw all the bad things that you've done, past, present, and future, all the deep, dark things that you have done, wanted to do in your head, whatever, your heart's intentions, and he died for them in that one moment, for all y'all, including me, including you. We don't deserve that. But by grace, he offers it. For the people of God, we have a shovel. And the shovel isn't to dig a hole to bury people. The shovel is to dig a deep hole and find the treasure, the excellence in each individual. Why? First and foremost, we are made in the image of God. Secondly, we need to understand that who we are now is who we are not to be a day, a week, or a month from now because God wants to continue to transform you in being like him. And so when we get a shovel to bury people, we realize you are forsaken. You are no good. There's no help in you. And listen, that is not coming from a biblical theology. A biblical theology is this. You come to Jesus Christ. You're forgiven. You're saved. The Holy Spirit comes in you. As you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he sanctifies you. He grows you. He makes you more and more like Jesus. That is his plan. And so we honor each other. Too many churches are focused on reaching, and here's the deal, instead of honor, we, we often fight, we often fight. When Christians fight each other, instead of fighting for the gospel to go forward, it doesn't matter how gifted or popular or passionate you are, uh, when the church fights the wrong fight, the gospel comes to a grinding halt. We must fight for the gospel. Our focus must always be on Jesus and on the cross, and at Kenosha City Church, that is what we will do. Our obsession must be the Lord in the forward motion of reaching people with the gospel, making disciples, make disciples, make disciples, making much of Jesus. Too often we, we can fall into the trap of trying to reach other Christians from other churches and, and trying to become cool church at the expense of another church. And listen, here's the deal. There's a way bigger market share, if you want to put it that way, a way bigger pool of people who haven't stepped foot in church their entire life in this very county. I mean, if you think about it, there's 160,000 plus people in Kenosha County, of which this morning, 130,000 people aren't going to church, of which over 100,000 people haven't even stepped foot in church, maybe since they were a kid. We have a lot of people who need to know the hope of Jesus Christ this morning. Are we up for the task? Because you are anointed. Oh, this isn't for somebody else. This is for you. You are anointed and appointed Honor each other as agents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you honor the spirit of God that's in you. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit to live in you. It is your responsibility to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Too many people walk in this life and are like the holy who? Right? 
They're not relying on the power of God that makes possible the impossible. And we naturally, listen, naturally in ourselves, we can be lazy people, spiritually lazy. When we are led by the Spirit, we will have fervor that can only come from the Spirit himself. When we have zeal for the gospel, when we have spiritual fervor, uh, we are a breeding ground of optimism. When people lose their optimism of what God can do, when you lose your wonder of what God can do, when you lose the ability to see how God can use you in his kingdom, I want you to know you are a candidate for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit this morning. You cannot do it in your own natural self. You'll grow empty. Optimism sees what can be. What is broken doesn't have to stay that way. If you're angry, you can find joy. If you're bitter, you can drink from the cup of grace. If you're lazy, you realize, if through the Spirit of God, I can get out of my seat and I can start serving the body of Christ because God has anointed and appointed you to be fervent in the Spirit about the things that matter to God. That's what we're gonna stand before him. Did you do things in your life as a follower of Christ that mattered before him? When people are fervent in the spirit, it must be said, it doesn't mean that we will all look the same. Uh, this is a trap that we, we fall into when it comes to the things of the spirit, uh, that we think like, okay, we all have to look the same, whether it be in, when we're praising worshiping time or, or how we talk or, or you know, how we get excited. People confuse fervency of the spirit with temperament. Does that make sense? Your temperament, your, your personality. We are not meant to be the same temperament or be the same cookie cutter person. The beauty of the gospel is that God brings together people with all different personalities and empowers them and transforms them through the same Holy Spirit. A very extroverted person once went up to Allison. I have permission to tell Allison this story or tell you the story of, of Allison. A very extroverted person once went up to Allison and said, once you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll become more like Andy. You're right. Oh, no, I was like, <laughs> I have realized when, here's the thing. I have realized when I am full of spirit, I actually act more like Allison, all right? Don't confuse spiritual fervor with personality and temperament. Spiritual fervor will align your temperament to the things of God, the values, the words that you say, and everything that you do underneath the lordship of Jesus. But do not think for a second, if I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm going to act like Pastor Will, I'm going to act like Pastor Andy, I'm going to act like Pastor Brandon, or, or whomever, right? God wants to use you through your temperament to do amazing supernatural things to build up his church. We are told to be like Jesus. The only, way, the only reason why Paul said, hey, do things like me, he's saying that because he wants people to do the things of Jesus. If I'm ever saying, hey, follow my example, it isn't to be like me, it's to be like Jesus. And whatever I say, it better be what Jesus said. There's too many personalities walking around that want a following. I could care less about a following. You should care less about a following because Jesus needs a following and we need to be the followers, amen? You're anointed and appointed by the Spirit of God to be used by him. Practically speaking, there's a place for you to serve in this church right now. We serve the Lord together with our time together. That is, this is part of how we serve the Lord together, not neglecting meeting together. Uh, we serve together by making church happen in this community. There's over 100 volunteers that make this thing happen. But by the way, our kids area, it's busting at the seams. We needed 12 volunteers. Now we need nine, all right? But if we're gonna actually be fully functional, 
we, we need all nine. So hey, if you're not serving somewhere, pray to the Lord, he may say, city kids, all right? So, <laughs> you are what you love. You are what you love. What do you love? You know that you're in love with Jesus when you're defined by a love that's genuine and a love of his kingdom. And the second part of this, of this message, we're gonna talk about two more of those things in a couple weeks' time here. But here's what I want you to take away this morning. Where is grace lacking? In your speech, in your thought, in your action, where is grace lacking? Too often we don't love because we feel like the recipient doesn't deserve the love of Christ. Ooh, 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 that is not good theology, all right? Grace is undeserved favor. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where is our grace lacking in our speech, in our thought, in our action? Who do you, and as a result, who do you need to encourage this week? Who do you need to encourage this week? Are you tolerating sin in your life right now? What are you tolerating? Like, I'm just not doing it, but no, what are you fancying? Like, what is something like, man, I really wish I could do that. Talk to the Lord to help deliver you from even those temptations. Again, temptation is not necessarily a sin if you don't give into it, but ask God to give you a love for him and a hatred towards sin. And who are you going to invite? Who are you going to invite? Because here's the deal. I've been praying, and we've been praying as leadership this fall, that we would break ground that we've never broke before in this city of the 100,000 plus people that don't even walk into church, that don't know the hope, or they heard the hope, or they saw something that turned them off, we wanna see people walk through these doors that are gonna give church one last shot. Who are you gonna invite? Because God wants to use you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that love, you are love. And that God, as we love people, whether they're easy to love or they're hard to love, that God, that people would see the loving, patient, kindness and grace in our spirit Lord we love you and we thank you God that while we are yet sinners you died for us as we continue to pray I just want to talk to anybody out here if today you're uncertain that you have a relationship with Jesus you feel far from God have you placed your faith and trust personally in him are you certain you're going to heaven you see, Jesus told us that we can know that we have a relationship with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. That means die spiritually, but have everlasting life. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. All those who cry out in the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you cried out to Jesus asking him to be your savior? Cry out to him right now. Cry out to him saying, Jesus, I need you in my life. I wanna place my faith and trust in you alone. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. I want to place my full faith and trust in you now. I'm asking you to forgive my sins past, present, and future. With every head's bowed and eyes closed, if that's you today, you're crying out to Jesus. You're asking him to be your savior. We just slip up your hand. Just every head bowed, eyes closed. Let me just see you if that's you today. Great. Awesome. Anybody else? Just put up your hand. Awesome. I see you. I see you. Anybody else? Great. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are responding to you this morning. They're saying, I want to place my faith and trust in you alone. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you're mighty to save. Lord, I pray for everybody in this room right now that they're realizing, they're doing an assessment of their love. I pray first and foremost 
they would fall deeply in love with you, knowing they have no love to offer if they don't go to the source of love. Secondly, God, I just pray that they would, their hearts would break for those that don't know you. Keep them focused on your mission and on the cross. I pray that nothing would make them waver from that. And God, I just pray that today that forgiveness would abound in their hearts for anybody where bitterness may be setting in. God, I pray that through this we'd be better, not bitter. So God, I just pray right now that you, your Holy Spirit would come over us, fill us, and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.